Hi, and welcome to Purple Couch, a psychiatry podcast. I'm Dr. Amit Bhadat. This podcast aims to improve the understanding of psychiatry for medical learners through conversations with different mental health care practitioners each episode. As someone who's just started their journey in psychiatry, I know it's a discipline that many struggle with, and I hope this podcast will improve your understanding of different concepts. Welcome to episode two, where we will discuss the complex topic of peripartum depression, as well as other aspects relating to maternal mental health. We will discuss what makes the period of pregnancy a high-risk period for the development of depression and delve into some of the pathophysiology behind this. We go through an approach to history-taking, examination, investigations, and the initial management of a patient with a suspected postpartum onset of depression. My favorite part of this episode is when Dr. Alex Maestow, our guest consultant, discusses the expectations placed on new mothers and how these impact their mental health. So to introduce the guest for this episode, she's Dr. Alexandra Maestow, a consultant psychiatrist at Chris Harney Baraguana Academic Hospital, where she has worked since 2017. She's also a lecturer at the WITS Department of Psychiatry. As I'll say many times, we're so fortunate to have it go through this topic with us as she has a special interest in perinatal psychiatry, having completed her research in antenatal depression. She also runs a multidisciplinary maternal mental health clinic at Barra Hospital. I hope you will enjoy this episode and leave a rating as well as any feedback which can help us improve further episodes. Dr. Maestro, and Hi. thank you for joining me. Thank you for um, the opportunity. On this podcast, I'm so lucky to have you, specifically with regards to the topic we're doing today and the fact that you have a very strong interest in uh, perinatal and maternal mental health. And today, obviously, we're discussing postpartum depression. Um, why maternal, or why, what about maternal mental health uh, interests you so much? So, I think um, perhaps. What's so interesting about it is that opportunity to do both preventive um, and sort of ongoing treatment um, care. So what we find is that um, in cases of antenatal and postnatal depression, there's such significant long-standing impacts from a huge um, point of view of affecting an individual, affecting their children, affecting Mm -hmm. family members, and that can be quite long-standing in terms of those impacts. So if we can manage it during that period, we can potentially change an outcome for the child and what their long-standing resilience will be, long-standing mental health will be, even um, in third world countries like our our own, even their physical health will be um, positively impacted just by addressing something that is quite easy to treat and easy to implement changes. So it's an area where we have so much potential to impact on such large sort of number of people and, and parts of the community. Wow. Yeah, I think that's something that gets not lost, but maybe not emphasized enough, is that maternal mental health impacts children as well as, well, the mom and impacts families. Yes, yeah, so I think that that sort of mother is quite a pivotal part of a family. And Absolutely. so her ability to, to mother and to sort of engage with the child and form attachment relationships will 
have huge impacts on that child later and our potential in terms of seeing that child as a psychiatry patient further on down the line. Yes, um, yes. And then, yeah, also I think um, just from a family point of view, how it impacts how the family structures work, even um, from a parent point of view, um, I know that it's not covered at the moment, but you even have cases of paternal postpartum depression wow. where a father's um, mental health is affected by, yeah. by that process. Wow. Okay, so you, I see a lot of places, the textbooks, it says peripartum and then postpartum. Do you want to sort of just differentiate or maybe what these terms specifically mean with regards to mental health? Okay, perfect. So I think maybe what's important is that we use the term perinatal. So that would cover both during pregnancy and up to about a 12 sort of month period postpartum. And there are a lot of complications in terms of trying to just address perinatal depression without looking at a past history or looking what else is there. So it may represent a new episode, it could represent another episode when there's a previous history, or it could represent a continuation of there having been chronic and mm. um, mm. sort of peripartum and um, chronic depression even before the perinatal period. So there are risks that are unique to the perinatal period, but also risks that just occur during that period. So for example, your risk of depression occurs usually in women at a childbearing age. So your chances of it occurring in the perinatal period are higher just because it coincides in terms of their age. And then there's also um, the consideration of it being present in the pregnancy is your highest risk factor for there being postnatal depression. So if you just look at the postnatal period, you're going to miss the opportunity to treat in pregnancy. And that's potentially the biggest impact because that's when there's changes in your intrauterine environment that will be affected and change that sort of child's future in terms of their um, the tone of their back hypo sort of um, HPA axis and in terms of how they are resilient to stress. So I think that maybe it's worth looking at it as a kind of long sort of um, on a continuum of is it chronic, is it a pre-existing depression or is it unique to this perinatal period and then is it present both during pregnancy or just after pregnancy to look at that. So I know the title of this episode is postpartum depression but that's not how you should actually say it or a lot of people emphasize on the fact that postpartum is a specifier. Yeah so I think maybe sort of peripartum would be a kind of more accurate um, Okay, shut up saying postpartum. No, no, not at all. So for the sake of, of this is, if in our scenario, this person presents with postnatal. Yeah. But our highest risk factor for postnatal depression is the presence of depression in pregnancy. So maybe just to highlight that it's probably worth checking within a pregnancy period to try and pick it up earlier as opposed to only looking at it from a postnatal point of view. Also, during pregnancy is when you're going to have the most significant difficulties in terms of treating because of that risk to the fetus. So that's also um, why maybe more attention has been given in the postpartum period because people are maybe a little bit more brave or more willing to treat um, postpartum than they are during pregnancy. Okay, so we're going to talk around a small case study um, that highlights 
um, this topic. So a 28-year-old single mother of a two-month-old baby visits her local clinic. She reports finding it difficult to cope with her baby and sometimes has thoughts that life would be easier if her baby were dead. She feels guilty about harboring such thoughts and feels like she is not fit to be a mother. She reports feeling extremely tearful for the first few days after the delivery but then felt better soon after. However, over the past five weeks, she has been feeling sad and tired all the time. This is her first child, and it was a planned pregnancy. She lives with a husband who works as a paramedic. So I know the case is by no means exhaustive, but I think it just sets a nice frame for us to go through different aspects um, in postpartum depression. So you mentioned earlier that postpartum or presentation postpartum can be an exacerbation or a manifestation of an existing psychiatric illness, but it can also be the time where a patient experiences her first index episode. What about this postpartum period is so high risk for developing psychiatric illnesses or for um, exacerbation of existing mental illness? Okay, so I think it's it's quite a, um, I suppose, multifactorial um, thing in terms of, I suppose, like all psychiatric illnesses. So basically what we need to do is look at multiple different factors and how they would contribute. So from a postpartum point of view and even pregnancy, just from a stressor point of view to a woman, you have to consider that there are huge amounts of changes that will occur during that time. So those will include things like hormonal changes just from fluctuations in your reproductive hormone levels, from being very high in pregnancy to suddenly low postpartum. Then there also are brain changes that can occur that um, are important in terms of the development of um, infant mother bonding and those changes in your brain may be different in patients who have depression versus those who do not have depression. So those changes um, may be affected by the hormonal changes, by genetic factors, by epigenetic factors such as previous histories of trauma or um, previous histories of, of sort of um, life adversity and difficulties in a woman's life. And all of those now um, occur in this time where there are changes in terms of her body, changes mm-hmm. in terms of her relationships and how she interacts with her partner, with mothers-in-law, with her own parents, um, and those impacts in terms of the expectations on a woman and perhaps if those make um, her self-care go down a little bit, so she's sleep-deprived, struggling, maybe struggling with things like breastfeeding, um, and there can even be a sense of this sort of so- society where there's a lot of me- mom shaming going on, where your decisions about how you want to deliver, your decisions about whether you want to breastfeed or not, whether you want to be a stay-at-home mom versus you want to be a working mom, all of those um, come with a lot of feelings of guilt and a lot of shame um, in terms of a very vocal community on what the right thing to do is. So women, if they aren't able, for example, to breastfeed and struggle, they have these feelings of guilt mm. that maybe they're mm. worthless and not good enough. And so there's a societal expectation that this has to be a time of only happiness and that you're supposed to feel elated and immediately fall in love with your child from the second that they're born. Yes, and feel joy and feel happiness. And then when there are difficulties, that becomes sort of internalized in terms of the woman being a failure or perhaps 
like your, your case scenario, that they feel like maybe they're not fit enough to be a mom because they're struggling with things, um, which are actually probably a normal experience and, and what is expected in pregnancy, but that's not always spoken about. So the taboos of, of sort of negative feelings around pregnancy are, are sort of swept under the rug um, and this need to put, especially maybe in a world of social media, this sort yes. of perfect image of your family, of everything going well. And, and that's perhaps a bar that is just impossible to reach and, and would make women feel quite inadequate if they don't feel that they're meeting that um, that sort of unrealistic in terms of their, their feelings around having a baby. Wow. So you've touched a lot uh, on a lot of different so risk factors and a lot of them are biological but also psychosocial and I, the psychosocial risk factors are so important and get spoken about a lot and I want to focus on both of them. What I, when I was researching this topic, what I wasn't really so well versed on was a lot of the biological changes um, and this is not to say biological, I'm by no means just like biological practitioner or anything like that. But a lot of the, it's quite interesting. I had no idea that um, in the postpartum there's a lowering of serotonin levels and there's a lower affinity specifically for um, serotonin receptors. Yeah, so I suppose what's, what's difficult is that we actually have quite a broad phenotype of women who have postpartum depression and where our difficulty in finding specific biomarkers um, that we could use to identify at risk women is that we really actually have a very broad idea of what depression is and so you perhaps have different groups that would have different risk factors so for example the timing of onset of when you have symptoms might mean that you have different predisposing factors or the the relevant sort of impacts in terms of genetic factors whether it was a pre-existing or a new um, in sort of um, episode all of those would actually make you phenotypically different and so have different risk factors so there isn't a way to check for example a serotonin level and then say oh look it's low that means there's depression or even looking at hormone levels like estrogen progesterone levels which have always been an area of um of sort of concern because there are such drastic changes where people were hoping to find consistent abnormalities is they haven't really been able to find consistent abnormalities and I think that that really is because it's a little bit more complicated than that so for example your reproductive hormones have huge impacts in terms of how they affect um, gene expression and how they affect um, the neurocircuitry in your brain in terms of looking at different mood states and how they affect your HPA axis and your thyroid function and so if you just look at the hormone level itself you're not going to pick up enough changes mm -hmm. but if we are able to do genetic studies that look at that hormone um, receptor sensitivity like you mentioned then that's when you perhaps pick up that there are some patterns so recent advances just in terms of looking at different possible treatments include things like short-term IV use of allopregnanolone which is a hormone involved in GABA um, modulation and that has been incredibly effective in terms of a response within a 24-hour to 48-hour period in patients who are have severe postpartum depression so what we've basically finding is, is incredible new options in terms of treatment based on the findings of hormonal involvement and alterations in our um, uh, sort of risks from a genetic point of view, epigenetic changes and how to adjust those. So really it's multifactorial with obviously um, not 
sort of withholding the really significant impact of those social risk factors, which I think, especially in our um, context, you have to consider very carefully. So those can be areas um, where you can modi modify the outcome. So for example, risks in interpersonal violence, interpersonal relationship difficulties, things like um, looking at if there are comorbid substance use um, or other risk factors from that point of view, looking at what kind of social supports there are and how to access those social supports, um, problems of sort of indicators of poverty, like low educational levels, um, sort of early pregnancy, unplanned pregnancies, unemployment and problems like that, which would increase your risk of depression in that period when you suddenly have a new mouth to feed, for example, or you suddenly feeling a little bit more um, worried from a financial point of view or needing a lot more support if you aren't coping. So those things are all important. So sorry to be off a bit. So uh, that sort of genetic testing, would ideally that be done in um, uh, prenatally to assess whether you're at risk of developing or whether you will develop? So I suppose a long-term plan would be for us to be able to identify consistent um, sort of biomarkers that we could then use to see who would be at risk. We aren't at that level at the moment. So at the moment, we are sort of at the level where we are investigating what are proposed or possible underlying causative factors. And by doing that, we hope to find a way to be able to test. At the moment, our best way of testing is really from a screening point of view and just mm -hmm. sort of looking for early signs for any risks so, for example, doing a risk factor assessment in terms of seeing who might be risk from those modifiable factors where we could alter someone's social support and circumstances to try mediate the severity of depression or um, enable them to get support earlier on. So there aren't any reliable enough indicators that we can use, um, for example, one genetic test that looks at one loci on one gene. What we have is looking at specific um, sort of multiple gene loci and finding multiple areas that are important, which are quite similar to the ones important for depression outside of the peripartum period. So for example, things like um, the certain the, the um, receptors that are involved in serotonin um, and receptors involved in um, our enzymes that break down neurotransmitters. So those things that are quite consistent amongst depression and um, both outside of pregnancy and in pregnancy and then looking at the ones that might be particular to this period for example those sort of the hormone regulation and, and the impacts that maybe that would have on immune functioning on neuroendocrine functioning and those sort of downstream effects um, but we're not there yet yeah so uh, you mentioned so you mentioned the importance of screening and i do want to touch on screening a bit but maybe f just for the sake of our medical students you can maybe just touch on which specific hormones are implicated or play a role postpartum okay so so basically there's a very drastic sort of reduction in our estrogen and our progesterone levels which occur postpartum mm -hmm. um, and those are reproductive hormones and um, which are sort of reduced um, in order to set up the stage for then, for example, being able to breastfeed and um, sort of the changes that occur um, in our in our bodies in order to allow maternal um, sort of behaviors to occur thereafter. So the alterations in our oxytocin levels, alterations um, as a result of that estrogen and um, 
prednisone that then impact on our HPA axis. So that would affect things like our cortisone, our stress hormone, um, that um, allopregnanolone, like I mentioned. So all of those things would be altered. Um, our prolactin levels change. And so there are multiple hormone levels from sort of very, um, a huge amount of areas, even including um, immune modulators. So our we go from being um, quite anti-inflammatory in terms of the amount of cytokines we have during pregnancy to having quite a pro-inflammatory process thereafter. And so inflammatory cytokines are implicated. So, so really it's quite a, a complicated process. I think from a student point of view, um, maybe it's important to know that there are sort of biological factors that are involved which have an impact from a hormonal point of view, an underlying neuroendocrine point of view, an immune modulation point of view, and then that that actually causes changes in our neurocircuitry, so functional and even structural changes to a woman's brain during that period of pregnancy and then postpartum. And all of those are set up to enable us to cope with a fetus, looking after that fetus, sort of um, priming our body to grow a fetus, and then afterwards those changes are set up to be able to then feed mm. an infant mm. and look after an mm. infant. But that certain underlying mechanisms or if there are alterations or things that go wrong, then interfere with those behaviours and that can affect our like affect our cognition, our motivation, our energy levels um, and how we cope with stress. And that then would, would result in changes in terms of our ability to cope and lead to things like depression. So I don't know if it's an old school thinking or even if it's still present but there's this idea that certain reproductive hormones are protective against developing mental illness and a lot of people speak about this with regards to schizophrenia in terms of like risk factors for schizophrenia. So um, I think that there is quite complicated evidence and with some studies sort of in support of that theory and some studies which haven't shown it. Mm. Um, I suppose, like I said, is that really it's not one phenotype mm. of that mm. all postpartum depression is created equal. And that's why maybe we aren't finding consistent results. And that if we can adjust when we are researching sort of how we adjust our criteria of who to include, and if we can make that more sort of focused, we may find more patterns of where there are consistent changes. So, um, there haven't been consistent changes, for example, that, that estrogen and progesterone levels equal depression um, in all cases, but that maybe it's the further downstream effects. So, for example, how um, responsive our body is to those hormones mm. that is more um, likely to actually play a role. So the levels themselves are not really helpful and are not suggestive in all cases. So there's been sort of some evidence to support it and some evidence against it. But that maybe it's it's the downstream effects so how those impact on other aspects of our brain functioning and other aspects of our body that are more um, sort of responsible for those changes so we've spoken about some of the advancements of future research into um testing as a means of screening but in our setting as and you've done your research on this topic screening for antenatal depression how common is it actually in our setting do we screen enough so um, I think what's really important is that the screen itself isn't sort of the answer, but really that it then leads us to sort of identify cases and that we then really have to make sure that we have processes in place to then deal with these identified women. But from a screening point of view, if we can identify the difficulties, especially even like I mentioned, sort of from a pregnancy point of view, um, then we can put interventions in place that can then adjust the outcome. So from a screening point of view, that should be done 
in a general setting, so for example at an antenatal clinic mm. in a pregnancy point mm. of view or even postnatally at your well baby visit. Mm. So you don't need psychiatry services mm. to do a screen. So um, if you can imagine the, the sort of pickup that you get from screening for, for blood pressure in pregnancy, screening for depression would give you the same pickup mm. and it is unheard of mm. and absolutely criminal to not check someone's blood pressure in pregnancy absolutely. so it really does indicate that how prevalent it is and actually the benefit would be equivalent to the benefit of treating blood pressure wow. so there really is a place for screening and um, in terms of screening tools and um, what i think is really important is making sure that you've got access to something that's easy to use and that oh. could be used by different levels of staff Yes. So um, we have a colleague who's done research um, for her PhD, Dr. Karina Marseille, who looked at just using a two-question screen called the Woolies Questionnaire, which just asks how your mood has been in the last two weeks and have there been feelings of anhedonia, so loss of interest or pleasure. And those two screening tests are basically as sensitive as sort of much longer 10-point yeah. screening yes, like. Because I think the one that mostly comes up when you're researching this topic, especially on like apps and things like that, uh, is the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. Yes, yeah. So, so that scale is, um, is incredibly useful. What's nice about it is you can use it both in pregnancy and postpartum. And it was designed specifically for the perinatal period, which means that it has um, the, the questions that are asked exclude the normal somatic symptoms of pregnancy and postpartum. Mm. So our problem is that there is significant overlap in terms of the feelings that you would have, for example, not being able to sleep, um, feeling tired, yes. fatigued. And if you use a general questionnaire, like for example, a HAMD, your problem is that you're going to perhaps over identify patients um, because of those somatic symptoms. So the Edinburgh um, depression screening was really to design so that um, it eliminated the somatic symptoms that might be normal in pregnancy or postpartum. And so it looks really at more sort of emotional point of view in terms of how you've been feeling, feelings of guilt, suicidality, hopelessness, um, and those um, feelings of loss of pleasure. So those kind of symptoms which are perhaps more sensitive in that period. Um, it is a 10-point questionnaire, um, but the problem is that it does have a Likert scale in terms of um, of your how much or how strongly you felt about the questions. What we found is that that sometimes is hard to translate to a South African setting from a second language point of view. Mm. So they have done um, really nice research um, of interest in, for example, a local setting in Cape Town where they've converted it um, to different languages and have used it with quite a lot of success. But I do find that that's where we sometimes have difficulty in terms of the almost always, sometimes, and, and perhaps it's quite difficult to delineate those. So um, if we are in settings which are resource poor, perhaps using a two-point scale like the Woolies where there's not um, any like it or in terms yes, of trying to, yes. to sort of add up scores, um, which is quite sensitive and has had really good sensitivity and specificity in terms of picking up who might then need further investigation. Um, if you add um, a risk factor assessment to your screening tool, then that will be further information and further helpful in terms of picking up who might need an intervention. So um, then you could look at, for example, looking at psychosocial stresses and, and things that might be sort of involved in terms of worsening outcomes, adding stress, and that helps you so that they're modifiable, you can treat those, and then um, that can then, you after that point, you can see whether it is sort of depression when you do a full assessment as opposed to it being sort of an adjustment disorder or difficulties 
from a psychosocial point of view that can be addressed differently. So you've mentioned a risk assessment a number of times now, and we do risk assessments in psychiatry, but what does that look like to a postpartum Okay, so there's no one sort of risk factor assessment that's used universally. So everyone um, sort of is using different ones. There are variable ones you can look up um, and that have been used and tried in different settings. What is important is that you need to look at risk factors that are quite common in your setting and ones that are associated with depression in your own setting. So that's um, quite important. So, for example, in our setting, we have a setting where there is a huge amount of, for example, unplanned pregnancy. And if you look at international literature, they might equate unplanned pregnancy as equal to an unwanted pregnancy Mm -hmm. because their rates are low. Mm -hmm. But in our setting, up to 50% of our pregnancies aren't planned, but a lot of those mothers are quite happy about the pregnancy and they wanted babies. So in our setting, to use those as equivalent would actually um, be inaccurate. So you do have to sort of um, know your your kind of socioeconomic sort of um, setting to know what would be sort of more significant. Um, Obviously, things like um, sort of use of substances and um, not having social support or having interpersonal violence within relationships, that is universally sort of um, a risk from any setting. But there are some that might have more meaning in certain settings versus others. So um, what I'd say is that generally you have to just sort of look up what are problems that are quite common in your setting um, and then against what research has shown that are usually risk factors and then sort of come up with with a screen um, that would sort of encompass both the quite culturally sensitive but also um, sort of universally accepted risk screening. And then with regards to screening, um, like you mentioned earlier, so there's a lot of expectations around women to feel elated and the joys of motherhood and all these things. And when you look at screening questions, is there a risk that some patients may downplay or negatively or well, positively report because they may feel shame in saying that I currently feel um, low or I'm currently feeling suicidal and worried that uh, they're going to be looked at as, oh, well, this is supposed to be the most joyous time in your life. How, how dare you say you feel low or that you're currently feeling suicidal or something like that? I think that's a huge problem um, in terms of almost accessing social support from your loved ones. So I think that's why women sort of struggle in silence and don't um, reach out and don't communicate. So I think that problem is more almost from an accessing your own personal resources because that's where you are fearful about that shame. For me, um, if our services in terms of screening are integrated into what are routine antenatal services and routine sort of postnatal or or well baby visits, for example, it's less stigmatizing. And there's this um, awareness that that it's common and that they're asking these questions because they want to facilitate getting you assistance. So that might be where women are are perhaps more willing to admit to these feelings and because there isn't that fear of sort of rejection or fear of of consequences. And I think obviously in the way that it is provided, there's a huge difference in terms of um, how comfortable a woman feels. So for example, they might feel more comfortable with their particular provider that they know or have a relationship with um, or in that setting of, for example, the antenatal clinic where they've been going for visits um, to open up. Whereas if you refer them, for example, to a psychiatric service, they might be worried about that stigmatization and might um, then not make use of that service. So the integration, I think, is really important. The other thing is that um, 
there has have been studies with, which looked at sort of diagnostically um, depression. So a screening tool doesn't diagnose, obviously. So it just sort of tells you who's at risk and who might struggle, and then you need to do further investigation. But a self-reported distress actually does result in difficulties, even if it doesn't meet the criteria for actual depression. Mm-hmm. So if you pick up self-reported distress and they're not able to put interventions in place, and sometimes just the screening tool itself of asking someone and making time for their feelings um, can even be therapeutic. So even that short interaction of the five minutes where you actually um, sort of ask how someone is, that can be enough um, to to help someone to feel supported and then, you know, feel like they're able to to sort of access um, services because it's if it's done in a sort of non-judgmental yes. and sort of empathic yes. way. And so I think the tools themselves can be quite therapeutic um, in terms of just making space for a woman's feelings. So from a pregnancy point of view, there's a lot of care around women and, and how they looked after. And then suddenly postpartum, it's like the woman ceases to exist and all the inquiry and all the attention is placed on how's the child sleeping, how things going, um, and there's a sense that they can get a little bit lost in that. So even I think a little bit of focus just in terms of how they're coping, how they're doing, with an acknowledgement that it can be hard and difficult and that it's expected to struggle um, is quite helpful. So I think maybe um, to quickly go into that baby blues. Yeah. Um, so maybe yes, that's please. where, yeah, where that's that can thing. be covered. Because you mentioned earlier that a lot, well, a lot of the, the postpartum period itself, very stressful, this lack of sleep, um, irritability, and all of those things can be, can seem like symptoms of depression. So how do you go about differentiating what is, well, what Lehman described as baby blues to an actual major depressive episode. Okay, so so I think that um, what's important is that those symptoms can occur in, in around the first sort of two weeks postpartum. And that can be a, a sort of expected period of feeling quite tearful, quite irritable, struggling um, from an emotional point of view in terms of coping, um, feeling overwhelmed. And that is what we call the baby blues. And that is a natural adjustment to mm-hmm. a huge life event mm-hmm. um, and changes in, for example, all those relationships and um, change in terms of, of your focus and how you, you provide care and how you look after a child and sometimes at the expense of sort of looking after um, sort of self-care or, or looking after yourself. So that's a normal experience that can occur due to that change in hormonal fluctuations and suddenly a change in your role and all of those things that it represents. Um, so that's sort of what a baby blues um, experience is and that usually is the first two weeks. If it continues after that two weeks, okay. or the severity of those symptoms are, for example, obsessional thoughts around the baby, where you, for example, can't sleep because you're watching the child to make sure it doesn't stop breathing, yes. or obsessional thoughts about the health of the child, or whether the child um, is safe, and um, those thoughts can occur um, postpartum, and the, those sort of very obsessional thoughts, or very sort of suicidal, or feelings of even harming a child, and um, are often an indication that things are a little more severe and that okay. they might be more likely to be a major depressive episode. Um, or So extending beyond that first sort of two, two weeks, weeks up to six weeks period and then the severity of that, that for example, those feelings of hopelessness, worthlessness, feeling of not being good enough and feeling of not coping with all the other symptoms of, of sort of... Activity. And suicidality. And homicidality. Yes. So... Um, that's sort of the most important thing um, in terms of sort of identifying what is 
will require more intervention and more treatment versus what is a normal experience of sort of difficulty in adjusting to a life event. Okay. Uh, you mentioned earlier how, which I think in our setting is so pertinent, how postpartum um, patients are almost, or in the postnatal care, patients are almost sometimes only seen by the junior doctor or the intern on call and all the attention. I mean, well, it's so multifactorial and our obstetric and uh, maternal health services are so overwhelmed in the country where there's almost this pressure to create beds and discharge people postnatally and there's so much that can be overlooked in that period and a lot of the times um, it is the junior doctor that's seeing this this sort of patient. So as a junior doctor you called or a patient expresses some concern to you or you're concerned about a patient being at risk or having developed major depressive disorder, what are important issues you, uh, to highlight or to extract when you're doing a history? Okay, so um, I think from a sort of general point of view, if your junior doctors are the ones doing screening, then they can identify if someone's a problem from just a screening point of view. If you call to someone and you're doing a full assessment, like mm-hmm. a psych maybe, mm-hmm. yeah. to sort of look at someone, and then I think what's really important in, in the the history is looking at obviously the, the mood cluster um, and what's also really important is which we haven't covered is anxiety cluster mm. which is really really mm. common then you have to look at your obsessional thoughts and um, because just by nature of the changes that occur in your brain there is almost a natural tendency to become quite preoccupied with the safety of your child which is almost adaptive and healthy but if that becomes maladaptive and then those obsessional thoughts become Sort of more um, problematic that's where where there's huge risk so on top of your normal screen in terms of mood anxiety symptoms you want to look at that that those obsessional thoughts look at any signs of suicidality and um, any thoughts of harming the baby or or not being able to to sort of meet the needs of the baby because that from a risk assessment point of view would be really important and then the risk of of psychosis which is not common um in terms of just, for example, a, a, a postpartum depression where, where someone's just not coping, but it is just an indicator of severity and an indicator of risk. So you'd really want to know that there aren't any um, sort of psychotic symptoms around the baby or that might impair a, a mom's ability to look after baby. Um, so that would be really important from a kind of diagnostic point of view. Um, the history of there being any manic episodes is really important um, because bipolar disorder has often um, presents in the post postnatal sort of period mm. with uh, postnatal psychosis, um, which can um, include sort of manic symptoms. So, for example, where a woman feels almost a sense of um, kind of elation and then doesn't sleep and doesn't sort of, um, but has too much energy and then that sort of evolves into a full-blown mania and psychosis. So you do want to sort of exclude that there's no underlying risk from a bipolar point of view. So atypical symptoms of depression, looking at um, family histories of bipolar, um, specifically perinatal presentations in terms of previous history of psychosis, mania or depression, and then um, from a family point of view, because there is this underlying genetic link if there have been family members who've had sort of a perinatal presentation, that can also be telling in terms of that underlying genetic link. Um, and then obviously from a risk point of view, you want to make sure that there are no sort of substances um, or that they're not medicating sort of their feelings or emotions with trying to stay up later mm. or not you know, fall asleep or not be too fatigued with perhaps things like stimulants or any risky 
kind of behaviors that might put both mom and, and baby at risk. And then as you go sort of through your history, looking at your kind of psychosocial risk factors that would be in your developmental history, knowing um, have there been any sort of underlying traumas, any underlying problems with attachment that might affect this mom's ability to now attach, and then what the levels of support are like. So in terms of in the, in the sort of relationship with the partner, if he's involved, what the levels of involvement are, and then access to other support structures. So um, as part of my research, we looked at a little bit also in terms of women's opinions on different levels of support and found that in our context, we also there needs to be a focus on things like um, religion, so in terms of our sort of spiritual support and accessing help in those ways from a family point of view, from traditional um, sort of traditions, so sometimes traditions, for example, where um, moms or mother-in-laws come stay and offer support during that time can be quite helpful in different cultures. So sort of being able to respect what are our normal procedures in different cultures and, and seeing if that you can access that support um, just in terms of mitigating risk. So those are, are kind of the most important factors. Okay, and on examination, because we do do physical examinations, we're yes, doing psychiatric <laughs> yeah. So, um, I suppose if someone presents with an acute change in their mental state, especially postpartum and immediately postpartum, your first thought has to be to exclude a delirium. Mm. So that can be presented with feelings, you know, from things like um, irritability and psychosis. But even in a hypoactive delirium, they can look quite depressed, withdrawn, sort of. Um, so really, really important is to make sure that there isn't any source of sepsis. So that could be retained products, for example, or if there was a complication from a, a sort of seizure point of view, that there's no sepsis underlying medical conditions that might have sort of um, presented around that, that period. So for example, you're looking at your, your kind of liver dysfunction or renal dysfunction from HELP syndromes, mm-hmm. from preeclampsia. Um, problems like that and comorbidities for example HIV or things where where there might be another reason that the woman could be septic at that point in time so excluding a delirium doing a full physical making sure that there's no actual underlying cause is important and you can also get alterations for example in your thyroid function postpartum so that's incredibly important and they have done some studies into looking at for example vitamin d levels so sometimes if you want to do Sort of investigations just to see is there any possibility that adding for example vitamin d to your regimen might be helpful and um, making sure women um, are healthy from a kind of physical point of view even just in terms of being able to then care for a child is quite important so from a physical obviously you want to focus on um, sort of the the gynae system because they've just presented postpartum but also make sure that there aren't any other comorbidities so for example the the presentation of like a new thyroid um, problem there's even increased risk of things like your rheumatological conditions so you can have a lot of joint pain fatigue and problems like that in the postpartum period and all of those can mimic sort of the symptoms of um, of a, a depression so you need to just make sure that you are not missing something physical that can be treated with with different kinds of medicine so can we just go through a list of basic investigations that you should do um before diagnosing so, or rather yeah. to, well, to rule out other yes, causes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I think that you need to sort of um, play it by ear in terms of the actual patient. And so your examination will sort of lend itself to you deciding which investigations to do. And so it's not that we would do a full sort of investigation into every patient. So it depends on their presentation and what happened. But 
if you were, for example, in a casualty or you were called to an obstetric ward and it's in the immediate postpartum period where something like a delirium is quite high on your list, you would have to do all those investigations that would, would sort of exclude that. So things like a full blood count, looking to make sure that there wasn't too much blood loss mm -hmm. and there's now not, for example, symptomatic anemia, looking at things like your white cell count, make sure that there's no sepsis, your, your inflammatory markers, for example, like a CRP, ESR, PCT, depending on your setting. Um, in any case where there were suspected sort of implications from a liver or renal point of view, for example, if your patient had hypertension, preeclampsia, eclampsia, fits, anything like that, it's just to make sure that there are no electrolyte abnormalities and abnormalities from a liver point of view. Then um, if there has been a history, for example, of seizures in an eclamptic or anything, you can always do things like other investigations like an EEG, just make sure that there's nothing going on from that point of view. Um, an LP who should be LP, get... I suppose it wouldn't be a routine investigation. Mm. Also, um, you might have sort of, I suppose, a bit of a complicated picture because someone might, for example, have had a recent spinal mm. um, if mm. they did, for example, have a seizure. So I think unless there is a reason to suspect a meningitis, so from a clinical point of view, um, so obviously a maybe unwell HIV positive yes. patient who hasn't been on ARBs with a low viral load who presents now with you know, headaches, photophobia, as well of as course, clinical signs, but not necessarily as a routine investigation, um, but definitely if there's an indication for it clinically. And um, there's no sort of hormonal level that you can do or anything like that um, at this point that sort of is diagnostic yeah, or yeah. Would, would specifically tell you. Um, but yeah, just I suppose a basic investigation is the thyroid function, like I said. Um, because of that risk of the sort of hypothyroidism mimicking those kind of symptoms um, and that it can occur postpartum. And then just to extrapolate on maybe the importance of history, some like the nursing staff in, in maternity wards will sometimes be the first to be concerned yes. or notice any abnormal behaviour. Definitely, yeah. So I think the, those sort of postnatal wards are... Um, are definitely a good place because what you do is you can sort of see different people's reactions and different sort of um, how people respond to their babies. So the nurses can be very instrumental in, in terms of assisting with things like breastfeeding and, and, and offering support in that way. And so they can often observe so things like tearfulness and being sort of rejecting of the baby in terms of not wanting to interact and not sort of wanting to do the things with the baby or being quite anxious around the baby. A lot of obsessional thoughts can come up in that period. And sometimes with that psychosis, um, our, our patients can become, for example, quite sort of persecutory, fear the baby's going to be taken or that someone's not looking after the child or they can't sleep because they're worried something will happen to the baby at night. Um, so they'll often voice that to the nursing mm. staff. And, and so they often are the port of call in terms of of calling us um, and when you're taking collateral from a partner or family member what are important things to ascertain so i think um the first thing would be um to to take a look at behavior has there been any change and um, so both from there as an individual but also in their responsiveness to the infant would probably be so for example maybe there's been a change in how responsive they are or a change in how they interact with the baby. Have they voiced um, any risk, so any sort of feelings of, of self-harm or feelings of, of wanting to harm the child, um, any feelings of worthlessness, hopelessness around that? 
And then also, um, which I suppose is quite difficult because those neurovegetative features can have such overlap and mm. disturbances in sleep, disturbances in energy levels, social isolation, which now especially is quite difficult to pick up because um, you might have feelings of sort of anxiety around taking the baby out. Um, and even from a cultural point of view, there might be expectations that you stay sort of at home for a particular amount of time with your baby. So uh, I suppose you'd have to be quite sensitive about what is normal behavior with, within that particular culture and that particular patient. Um, so the family members will often tell you behaviors that they that are considered abnormal within their context. So they, they might say things um, that would, would make them worry within their context. So they're the best ones to tell you about about that experience. And then um, obviously collateral from a point of view of helping them to understand the problem, to understand that it isn't a lack of love for the child or lack of mothering, um, and that um, it is an illness that requires treatment, and then being able to, to see if you can ascertain what kind of support there is and how to improve that or how to boost um, the sense of involvement if there is, for example, a feeling of being overwhelmed and needing someone else to, to help in some way. And I think um, from what you said earlier, especially keeping culture in mind, that this idea of normalizing um, distress in the postpartum period, especially counseling maybe a partner. Yes, yeah. So I suppose that's why it might be useful to screen prior and, and to have these conversations with women um, in terms of our expectations. So, um, for example, a lot of women only hear about other people having distress or having struggled once they open up about it. And that's maybe where we need to work on sort of a, a bigger basis than individually in a hospital, but almost to increase this awareness of it being a difficult time and that there might be potential problems and that there are interventions and there are ways of accessing support. And I think the more there is that conversation and the more open people are um, about their experiences, the more other women feel like they can also open up. So... Um, for example, as I mentioned, that feeling um, that you're supposed to fall in love with your baby immediately. So that's a very variable experience for different people. So some people will feel that immediately and some people might, you know, have a little need a little bit of time in terms of their sort of um, getting over how overwhelming the experience is. Um, and even if they've had a difficult labor, for example, that can impact on that initial sort of feeling. Um, if babies had to go to NICU or to ICU, that can impact on that initial feeling. But that if it doesn't develop in that immediate first minute, it doesn't mean okay. that there's a problem yeah. or that it won't. So I think normalizing what is a normal experience, but also the normalizing um, that depression is common and that there are there is access to support so i think maybe that's where it's an important balance that people don't call everything baby blues mm -hmm. um, and they don't acknowledge that maybe it's getting worse or that they need more and um, then to just say oh no it's normal for me to be stressed or normal for me to be tired when it starts impacting on that relationship with baby and that um, sort of impact on, on the mom's health Okay, so back to our case study. So uh, this patient presented to a local clinic. So let's say you've seen this patient, you've taken a thorough history, you've done the investigations pertinent as you described above, you've taken your collateral and you're suspecting that this patient has a depressive disorder postpartum onset. Um, should you start managing? Should you refer immediately? So I suppose it depends on your sort of level of... Um confidence and familiarity so i definitely definitely think that you don't require a psychiatrist um, 
for all patients. So there you can start treatment um, in the context of a, a primary care setting and in the context from an obstetric setting. Um, as long so the more limits or the more um, steps to care, the greater chance that you're going to potentially lose someone. So I suppose depending on severity, you're going to have to make the call of whether you think they need psychosocial interventions mm. versus whether you think that they might need medical treatment, um, for example, with an antidepressant. And that's something um, that, so for certain cases, you could access social services um, in terms of this counselling from a social worker. You can access psycho psychological services in terms of um, someone to speak to and then they can assess the severity and then decide at a later point if there is a need for further psychiatric care so and then obviously from a risk point of view you might need is it does it require admission does it require psychiatric services immediately for example in the case of psychosis mania or if the depression is so severe that there's that suicidality or homicidal risk um, so that's what I wanted to clarify. So when you're de uh, treating um, major depressive disorder, you can, uh, if it's classified as mild, the suggestion can sometimes be psychotherapy yes. alone. So with postpartum, do you always need to medicate? No, so it's the same, the same concept. Okay. So mild, and you you would look at psychosocial interventions, psychotherapy. It really also a hugely important and perhaps underestimated aspect in our services is patient preference. Mm. So if a patient does not want to talk and doesn't feel it will be helpful and doesn't, for example, want to go to a group um, of other women who've had even, say, poor outcome you know, and are now depressed, it's not going to be beneficial to force them or to offer only that option. So it is really a benefit sort of risk analysis in terms of speaking to someone um, to be able to decide on what is a plan going forward that's individualized to that particular patient and that's going to be effective for them. So their feelings towards an alternative or different approaches makes a massive difference. So if they are completely against using medication, mm -hmm. um, you may need to consider alternatives. Obviously, you'd psychoeducate them on risks and on why the benefits and try to see if you can help them to understand and help to identify what are the myths or misunderstandings and regarding medicine. This. Yes, of course, From the, you do want to document it, but also really you want to offer a service um, where, which is multidisciplinary mm -hmm. and offers sort of an individualized approach because that's going to lead to a better outcome. And if there's a lack of access, I mean, depending on where you practice, there may not be psychotherapy. Would the thinking then be that even if the classification is mild that this patient needs medication? So I suppose if you had no sort of alternative option but I mean there are different levels of support and counselling so for example you can have counselling that might be from someone that for example is a home visitor who's had training in counselling who maybe would have access to going mm. to that person's house and offering support and increasing the access to services for example from a church point of view might be enough if it's a very mild depression to make someone feel supported, getting family involved and um, speaking to the husband and getting more support so that she can maybe be more rested, have opportunities to sleep, maybe help her to cope with abandoning a certain feeding program if it's not working for her, you know, something yes. where she might have had struggles with yeah. that. And that could be done even from the obstetrician, from the primary care sort of point of view. So, um, but I suppose if it is more severe or there's non-response to counselling or um, or psychological services or if there's no access to that, then medication is definitely 
an option that is safe and very, very beneficial and helpful for a lot of people. So drawing on those patients' social resources if available and if possible. Yeah. And then on the topic of medication, so maybe just touching, maybe more focusing more because there's a lot of antidepressants on the market, maybe focusing more on what we have available in state. Okay. Um, what is the choice? How do you go about deciding which agent to start so a patient with postpartum depression? So I think really important, and this is actually applying for both pregnancy and the postpartum period, is that no antidepressants have been found to have sort of teratogenic effects. So there might be mild um, effects of treating with a de- an antidepressant, for example, in pregnancy, um, that you can discuss with a woman in terms of seeing if she can sort of figure out from a risk-benefit point of view if it's beneficial treating. So patients themselves often worry about the risk of medication, but what they don't realize is that the illness itself has a risk. So Mm -hmm. as we mentioned, that intrauterine environment and that milieu of having high levels of stress hormone and that alteration in the baby's HPA axis development as a result of that would lead to long-term consequences. So women often hold on to, I mustn't take any medicine because it's a danger to baby, but without realizing that them being unwell is also a danger. So you have to kind of do that risk-benefit analysis of when to start treatment. And sometimes there's this, my mom never needed treatment, my sister never needed treatment. Yes, yeah, and this idea that perhaps needing treatment is a sign of failing or or not being good enough. And so you need to sort of address those beliefs and, and the worries around that. So that's in terms of when to start and how to look at medicine, which is sometimes more complicated in pregnancy because of women's misunderstandings and worries. Mm. So um, that's one thing. Then the other thing to consider is that we really have to prioritize the care of the mom. Um, So even within a pregnancy, if, for example, you have a mom who's had an incredibly complicated and difficult course of mental illness and has, for example, tried multiple different medications in the past and has failed those trials, and struggle to get better and has risk, for example, from a such severe depression that they are suicidal or there's a risk that they won't be able to care for the child, then really your choice in treatment has to be dictated by what is effective for them. So even if there is a medication that perhaps has been assessed as being lower risk, but they have not responded to that medicine, it is not worth then changing someone who's now stable on a different medication. So the risk of swapping or changing in someone who has severe mental illness um, and has had a complicated course is also worse. So your decision has to be what works for the mother and what's right for her because she's so important in terms of both an intrauterine environment point of view but also in the postnatal period from a mother-child bonding point of view. So what you really need to do is make sure that your mom is well treated and coping well and so that she can then look after the baby. So your choice in medicine is dictated by what's best for the mom and not just what sort of historically is used. If it's a new episode, and so you have perhaps more of an option to use um, any option and to do a trial, then what would be our first choice um, from an SSRI point of view, if it is a, a sort of major depressive disorder, as opposed to something like bipolar, yes, would be yes. to consider something like sertraline. So sertraline, um, or what you know, may be called Zoloft or Sodep or Zolife, um, is a medication that is an SSRI, but it has the least potential um, to cause sort of 
um, any impact from a pregnancy point of view. And also what's really nice is you can continue it very safely in the postpartum period um, because it has an, it doesn't go to the breast milk. Yes. So from a lactating mom point of view, even if they present postpartum but they are wanting to breastfeed or currently breastfeeding and you have a choice, your first choice would be surgery. And that's something a lot of moms are going to be concerned about. Can I be breastfeeding yes, my course, baby? Yes, of course. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely a consideration. So, so that would be your first choice. If you don't have that available, then the other SSRIs except for paroxetine are possibly sort of highly recommended in pregnancy, have been well tested for many years and are safe. So those are, for example, your your, um, SSRIs like your citalopram and your um, fluoxetine. So both those are options um, that are safe to use and can be, although they are excreted in some percentage within the breast milk are in such low percentages that there haven't been observable sort of difficulties with um, infants in the past so they are safe from an advice point of view but even the newer agents and for example things like your venlafaxine your um, simgene cymbalta so other medications have had trials have been used perhaps because they are slightly newer there's less evidence on them but they have done quite a lot of sort of naturalistic studies in countries where they have registries of huge amounts of people so in studies of multiple multiple thousands and they have also got a generally safe profile um, where you can consider them in cases so maybe not as a first line but in cases if the mom responded to those mm-hmm. options to then continue on those so, so i think what i'm drawing from what you're saying is that there's no best a or agent of choice it needs to be individualized yeah. and you need to see what's effective yeah. for so, the mom so the mom is the priority in mm-hmm. terms of what worked for her in the past needs to be a consideration as opposed to sort of reflexively just changing to sertraline in everyone. Um, if it's a new case um, and you, you are starting from scratch and you have the option of any choice, then sertraline would be a nice sort of first option to use. Um, but if it's a complicated course um, and mom's been on something or already exposed to something, then it might be worth sort of looking at continuing that option. Um, so you want to use the lowest effective dose, but it has to be the effective dose. So it also mm-hmm. doesn't make sense to lower something to the point that it is not effective. Mm-hmm. And then there are obviously considerations of when you add a treatment, and that's sort of from a kind of first trimester, second trimester, third trimester point of view, and then from a postpartum point of view. And the best time to treat is when the woman is not well. And so that's so people sometimes get stuck on, oh, let's wait and let's wait and mm-hmm. let's wait. Mm-hmm. And that perhaps is a disservice to both the mom and the and baby, baby because of those impacts. So it's really, if you think that medicine is indicated from a clinical point of view and there's severity that's severe enough to warrant it and you have tried alternative things like, for example, psychotherapy, counseling, and there hasn't been success, then you need to consider starting a treatment and regardless of where it is in the pregnancy. But... Um, but with the safest agent at the lowest possible dose. And then how long would you continue the treatment for? And maybe how often would you follow up on this patient? So that, I suppose, also is very patient-dependent. So I know I'm not giving you a lot of easy no. to... Well, sometimes there aren't answers. any. Sometimes yeah. there aren't any. So, um, so it would be very dependent on her presentation and, for example, if it's a new onset versus if it's a chronic... Um, so if there's a history of multiple episodes and very severe depression then sometimes there's an argument that we need to continue treatment long term. And the impact on the baby 
and long-term impacts on a child. So from even a cognitive level, internalizing disorders, externalizing disorders. And so future, even adulthood depression in children who were exposed to depression um, in their mothers is worse um, with the chronicity of the depression. So what you want to do is to get remission as early as possible. So the longer standing the baby is exposed to a mom who's depressed, the greater the impact impact on their cognitive development, mm. their health. Mm. So you want to to sort of make sure that that mom is as well as possible. So if it's a chronic or chronically relapsing depression, you might consider long-term use. If it's a first onset and it was perhaps where there are, were a lot of risk factors and a lot of social and um, sort of um, social determinants that perhaps lead to her feeling of depression and that there are interventions in place for those particular risks, then it might be easier to have a shorter term treatment. Um, and that would probably be about six months to a year after sort of initiating treatment as that gives enough time for her to recover, but also put sort of alternative sources of support in place. Um, so, so for example, um, you might have someone who's pregnant and then, for example, had a loss of their mother who was someone who was very supportive for them. Mm. And then you put them in therapy to deal with that loss. And then in that time, they've gotten more social support um, and you know, husband has been involved, and you know, the baby's now getting a little bit older. There might be a time where where you can look at um, you know, reducing the meds, and you would do that preferably under you know, direction of a doctor as opposed to just stopping yes. sort of cold turkey, and then that would be really dependent on where you are. So people sometimes get quite stuck on sort of oh, they said six months, now it's six months. So you, it has to be quite a flexible process mm-hmm. that that you do it in a time where where she's stable and well, um, and then you can try, sort of see, is there um, a benefit in reducing treatment? So, so it has to be quite individualized as well. But I think maybe what's important for a mom to know is that the medicine isn't addictive in any way, and it won't change her need to take it. So people often worry that I'll need it because I take it. Um, and I always joke and say you, you take it because you need it and not the other way around. But really, you have to adjust the goalposts. So you need to make sure that the focus is on quality of life um, as opposed to the focus being on a tablet or off a tablet. So those are the kind of conversations you need to have is sort of realign why do they want to stop? What is their reason for stopping? Um, and then also if someone has had sort of a very difficult course around the pregnancy is maybe also making sure that in future pregnancies, you sort of more aware and more alert and and that your I suppose index for starting would be a little bit more sensitive and um, because you wouldn't want them to struggle with the postpartum and depression in future so at the end of the day you're dealing with a very vulnerable time because you don't want a separation from the child for any extended period of time so you want to avoid such a severe episode where they end up admitted to hospital for weeks at a time and then that child hasn't had that opportunity for bonding and mom hasn't had that opportunity for bonding and there can be a lot of guilt and and difficulties around that so you want to be quite aggressive in your approach to make sure that you treat it preferably as an outpatient and as much as possible with as much support as possible but so that you try to prevent that severity from getting worse okay um are women who develop depressive episodes in the postpartum then at risk for developing depressive episodes outside? So, um, I suppose that that's a really good question and a question that we don't have a specific or only answer to. So, there is definitely a risk of in developing pregnancy in fu- uh, depression in future pregnancies. So, that sort of perinatal presentation will lend itself to a further 
So potentially was there an underlying genetic risk that made that peripartum period a specific vulnerability? Or was it that there's a general vulnerability, mm. so just that it was a highly stressful event and then that led it? So I suppose there's that possibility that any perinatal sort of episode could occur, but also that it was maybe um, what sort of unveiled a depression just because it is such a stressful time and that really there is maybe an underlying risk for depression in other moments. Um, so they definitely, I would say, there's an increased risk um, and to watch out for it from both a kind of perinatal point of view, but also a kind of relapsing depression, almost if they are sort of sensitive or, or have some predisposing factors that would make them vulnerable to depression, even at other points in time. Okay. And then I know this is slightly a bit out the scope of our topic, but you mentioned anxiety disorders just now, and I feel like since I have you in front of me, and you're probably one of the best people to ask about this, maybe if you could just tell us a bit about anxiety disorders in the postpartum period. Okay, so um, I suppose a lot of research has focused on depression um, sort of uniquely and looked at depression, um, and then with inquiry into that they found that there was actually a lot of anxiety and really anxiety is probably even more common in the postnatal mm. period so you're looking at rates um, depending on different places of up to sort of you know from conservatively 20 percent all the way up to sort of when you do screening of up to like 47 percent of cases so um there are brain changes um, during the sort of pregnancy period and postnatal which like specifically will speak to there being an increased anxiety response so changes in your limbic system changes in um, the part of your brain that controls fear so your amygdala um, and that is because by nature and from a kind of um, sort of instinct point of view your brain wants you to be perhaps a little more hyper aware or more sort of concerned with the health of your child so for example um, you want to be able to wake up quite easily mm -hmm. if your child cries and so there are effects of the baby's cry on your brain and effects wow. of your brain on um, your kind of sort of adaptive responses so that is just the nature of postpartum period at all so there's increased anxiety so not necessarily from a pathological point of view but even an adaptive point of view you need to be prioritizing your child and less concerned with other things so there's sort of a focus your brain specifically alters in its structure and functioning to make you be able to focus on that child and um, so that can cause just feelings of anxiety you know already and then on top of that if it then becomes maladaptive where you sort of feel overwhelmed and out of control and then develop kind of an anxiety disorder mm -hmm. then um it has sort of a similar presentation to anxiety, I suppose, outside the same way that your depression did, in that there are general risk factors for anxiety, um, and then also that there might be a specific vulnerability from a perinatal point of view with similar sort of underlying genetic risk factors and underlying sort of risk factors. Um, so if you are, for example, an anxious person, you might then be more predisposed to become anxious postpartum as well. Um, and then those impacts of sleep deprivation and fatigue and all of those things can enhance those sort of effects um, to where it becomes problematic um, in terms of those kind of obsessional thoughts and that, that way that you they're not able to cope. So you can't um, sort of quieten that anxiety or, or rationalize those sort of anxious responses. Um, so, for example, you can't you know, say to yourself, no, baby's okay and yeah. that's safe. You have yes. to sort of keep checking in or keep checking. Um, so definitely a high risk of, 
of anxiety. And sometimes it's like, is this normal? What my baby's doing? Is this normal? Should they be breathing? Yeah. Does the breathing sound like this? Yeah, so I think that's also something is that um, they talk about the fourth trimester being that period of time after baby's born. And it's almost sort of termed the fourth trimester because it's a period um, where where there's so much uncertainty and you don't there's almost so much that you have to do so even though baby's now outside mm-hmm. of you you still that level of involvement in looking after the baby's needs is so high that they are not independent in their needs at all mm-hmm. but during the first three trimesters of pregnancy there's a sense of some kind of control because you're able for example to be a good mommy by taking your vitamins and going to your antenatal visits and eating the right healthy foods and sort of so sense that you're able to prove your care for the baby by doing sort of some things and then what happens is the baby is born and suddenly any sense of control is lost so now the baby cries and you don't know why the baby's crying or what does it need it's not able to tell you so there's a sense of well especially for people who maybe need a little bit of control it's quite a a significant change where you felt like you had it waxed for that that time and then suddenly you aren't sure what to do so an anxious mummy where maybe they would be noticed is that they contact the peed sort of regularly and very very frequently and then the pediatrician sort of sometimes notices okay maybe mom's a little bit anxious or Mm -hmm. a little bit worried and that's when you might get a referral sort of as a mental health care practitioner in terms of someone's anxiety and so that or they'll present to casualty very often um in terms of maybe worrying something's wrong with the baby or that that's something and i think with that it's important again to differentiate when this becomes maladaptive because it is Yes, yeah, and I think that's Common. maybe where um, where communities, where there is a sense of community and um, or a sense of, of sort of organisation around a new mum, it's somewhat protective. So, for example, if you have sisters, aunties, moms around you so that you can ask if something's normal or they can tell you or they can help you or they can help to normalise that experience, um, that can be quite helpful. Whereas perhaps if you are in a situation where you're quite isolated and don't have that access um, that would be harder. So there are a lot of apps now where you can maybe have sort of a sense of, of I suppose, community in terms of other moms who are experiencing something similar. There's a lot of literature about mm-hmm. it where, for example, you can read about those first sort of um, days and, and what's normal and what isn't. And, and a lot of services in, in different countries would have maybe, for example, a home visitor who can kind of check on how you're coping and, and look at that. So those are definitely ways that we could maybe improve that kind of care. So, for example, a home visitor who checks in and sees, sees the growth and sees how you're coping and sees what you're doing, you can discuss fears or maybe even a telephonic line where you could have access to finding out and to phoning would be a way to sort of bridge that gap of that feeling of loss of control and where anxiety can escalate and can become problematic. And then maybe just to round off, I know breastfeeding is not possible for every mom. Um, I just found this interesting in that apparently breastfeeding is protective. Yeah, so so it's I suppose it's a bit of a chicken and egg um, situation. So it's unclear if the breastfeeding itself is what protects, or if um, there are underlying um, concerns which make someone who's less depressed more likely to continue with breastfeeding and more likely to breastfeed for longer. Mm-hmm. So um, there are inconsistencies on for example if the levels of oxytocin which are released you know through breastfeeding 
are um, helpful or not. So actually there's kind of sort of some evidence for and against it and in also a little bit of an unpredictable way. Um, but I suppose in one mechanism, the action of breastfeeding helps a lot from a bonding point of view. So there is release of hormones that help us to bond. And there's a sense of, of that sort of bonding, which is quite protective and helpful from a kind of infant attachment and bonding point of view. Um, but depression itself might make it difficult to do that. And so you might find that women with depression are more likely to stop breastfeeding earlier or to struggle with, with breastfeeding and choose not to continue their journey. But I think what's really important is that we have to be very, very clear on that it's acceptable for women to have a choice in the matter. Yes, so absolutely. I think that's where I was sort of talking about that lay kind of approach of, of sort of um, mom shaming and that's that feeling that if you don't breastfeed you're not a good mom um, and there's a difficulty there so when people do struggle then they can perhaps become quite sort of overwhelmed and quite anxious about that struggle um, when perhaps sometimes the right move is to consider are there alternatives that can safely be done or not um, and so I think it does have to be a bit about patient choice so if a mom is struggling with breastfeeding but wants to continue, it's worth giving her the support like lactation consultants or support in terms of helping that process, even medications that can help enhance sort of release of, of breast milk to, to help that process. But if a mom herself doesn't want to, but then is feeling guilted into it and having meaning, yeah. it's not worth sort of making her feel like if she doesn't breastfeed, she can't attach. So you know, there are mechanisms that you can have a lot of bonding experiences with your baby, even if it's not through that act of feeding. Um, and I think that's where perhaps the message is um, a little bit kind of confused is this pressure that if you don't breastfeed, you can't bond or you won't bond or there'll be problems. Um, the same goes for things like whether you want to sleep train your child or not sleep train and all this sort of evidence um, that gets mixed up with um, sort of not evidence-based mm. um, social media posting or, or sort of pressures in one way. So I don't think that um, breastfeeding is protective enough um, or, or treatment enough if it is a significant and real kind of mental illness. So it's not going to prove or sort of um, alleviate major depressive disorder. Um, but a mom's coping with breastfeeding, I suppose, perhaps could also be an indication of their mental state and where they are. Um, and maybe exploring that difficulty with that process or the ease of the process or how they, that's going would be a way into their mental state to be able to identify are there risk factors, are there problems, how they're coping, are they anxious, are they depressed. So that might be a way of us accessing um, sort of information in terms of assessing how they're doing. Um, but, but yeah, so quite a complicated, I suppose. So you shouldn't be telling any... Um, patient diagnosed with depression in the postpartum period, you should start breastfeeding, it might make you feel better, or you've developed depression probably because you haven't been breastfeeding. Yes, so I think that would be quite dangerous advice because I think um, there's enough guilt already, yeah. and, and the problem is that gives sort of a message of there being some sense of responsibility over being unwell. And so I suppose this isn't unique to the peripartum period, but in general, there is this idea that when it comes to mental illness, that you have to, that it's, for example, some kind of personal failing that you weren't strong enough, that you felt depressed, or you weren't 
um, trying hard enough, like just go for a run and you'll feel mm-hmm. so much better as mm-hmm. the messages sort of people say. Um, when someone is really depressed, they can't even wash their hair in the morning. So the idea of you telling them to run just makes them feel worse and more guilty as if they were responsible for yes, feeling this way. and not sweat. taking enough action. Um, so I suppose the same way, you know, you can't will your pancreas to make more insulin <laughs> if you're diabetic, you can't will your brain oh, to make you yeah, less anxious. Oh, that's an excellent analogy. Um, yeah. And that's the thing is, so so we have to be so careful with the messages that we send yeah. to women um, in this very vulnerable time that they don't feel a sense of responsibility or as if they if they tried hard enough or did enough things, they would suddenly, you know, be better. But maybe that we use for our benefit is their breastfeeding journey as perhaps a way of, of sort of measuring how they're coping, how they're managing, and maybe as a, a way of communicating to be able to assess that um, and to find sort of a more acceptable way in um, in terms of being able to offer support. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Meister. So what I've learned is there's so many changes in the postpartum period, both from a biological perspective, but again, social factors that almost sort of predispose or can be, a, I don't know what's the right word to call it, but a trigger for the development yeah. of a mental illness and why it's so important that we don't just negate women in the postpartum period. Is it fair to say these cha- the changes that your body goes through postpartum are paradoxical in the sense that they're there to help you care for your baby better, but also predispose you. Oh, I suppose it's so hard. Um, I, I don't think that that it's the changes. Um, I don't know that the biological um, aspect has, I suppose, an independent mm-hmm. factor aspect enough to say that that's, that's the thing that's predisposing. Um, I suppose it's it's just that there are multiple contributing factors and that something that can go wrong um, in that postpartum period might predispose you. So I suppose the same way in any illness or any pathology is as a result of something going wrong from a body point of view, whether that's underlying genetic or due to other factors. Um, I suppose it's maybe just that um, the take-home message would maybe be that it's a multifactorial thing and that maybe you need an individualized approach in terms of um, trying to figure out what are the, the potential risks that were important in that particular individual and then what space are they in and, and what are they sort of amenable to in terms of looking at areas to address um, in quite an individualized way in order to give them the greatest benefit. But for me, I suppose, is that um, the brain and specifically psychiatric or mental processes are perhaps ignored um, or um, under sort of um, estimated in different sectors or different settings. So for example, when someone's pregnant, you perhaps considering or, or quite focused on the gynae, you know, mm. sort of mm. or obstetric um, sort of history, um, but that failing to address sort of their coinciding mental illness would lead to detrimental effects and um, whether you're a pediatrician in of terms course. of the child or from a teacher point of view in terms of the child outcomes and um, from a mental health point of view in terms of how the child presents later and from the woman's point of view in terms of her coping and her managing so that maybe within each sort of phase of life it's worth considering how do those phases of life impact on us from a kind of psychological mental and sort of psychiatric point of view in order to try lead to 
to sort of better outcomes. So addressing those would lead to better outcomes. And that maybe they don't require specialized levels of care and they don't require too much time. So the mm. same way in terms of asking two questions. Yes. Takes one minute as a screen, the same way doing the blood pressure does. Um, there's this idea that, oh, but if I ask about how they're feeling, it's going to take too long and, mm. and I'm too tired and I'm mm. too overwhelmed. And there's and, a long queue. And there's a queue, but that actually two questions um, and then just having a referral system in place so that you don't have to be responsible for everything, but almost just to know, okay, they screen positive, then they go to a social worker just to review their circumstances. And that's where maybe you could look at the, the risk factors and then that person can say, okay, you know, these are more social risk factors or these are more psychological and then refer to a psychologist and then that person can then assess and say, okay, this is something that isn't improving with therapy or isn't sort of getting better and that's where they can look at a specialist level. So the specialist is quite high and away up yes, on the list. Yes. And so there's this idea And that, shouldn't be your first board Yes, yeah, or... that, I mean, unless obviously there's risk involved, yes, but, um, but that maybe sort of asking two questions um, is going to help you pick up you know, huge number of people that could benefit from some kind of intervention, um, which might finish it, the social worker, and we just help them with those kind of symptoms and those kind of risks, and then they, they manage and they cope fine, um, but that that can be very life-changing for lots of levels, you know, so from a parent point of view, so that particular individual, their child and the outcomes of that, then that child's ability to parent in the future yeah, too. Yes. So it's sort of like a, a kind of vicious cycle that if we don't intervene, there's sort of long-standing health consequences, both from a, a mental point of view, but even a physical point of view. And that will affect society yes, as yeah. a whole. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Maestro. I'm so grateful for you for do it. Grateful to you for doing this. So when I first proposed the idea of doing this podcast, you were one of the first people I spoke to, and thank you so much for encouraging me. No, thank to you so much. I think it's an amazing um, initiative, and we're very excited to see to see how the people catch goes. <laughs> so one of the aims is to try to encourage more students to get into psychiatry or maybe for people who's not sure what they'd like to do to think about psychiatry. What advice would you have for any aspiring psychiatrists out there or maybe someone who's not sure whether psychiatry is for them? So I suppose um, maybe the reasons why I think it's such a rewarding profession is is perhaps that um, you're dealing with with individuals and and that every patient is so different. So um, there's no room for boredom <laughs> for your entire career. So we we're quite a new discipline and and there's still so much to be learned and so much um, to be done from a research point of view, from a sure. sort of understanding genetics, from understanding the brain. So it's an area where there's just so much growth and so much potential and and really you have an impact in terms of being able to change someone's life completely. So I always sort of have felt that um, as long as your mental health is um, intact or is okay, you can tackle any problem. Um, so even you know people can overcome losing a limb or being able to uh, overcome loss and, and really devastating things happening to them. But if your mental health isn't okay, mm. you aren't really able to sort of function or to live in any sort of meaningful way. So it's an area where if we can give someone the tools to be able to sort of engage in life in a meaningful way, it's something where the difference that you can find in someone is life-changing. So I've literally had people who say things to you like, this is magic, like I can't believe I sort of never knew it or... 
or felt like that for so long and, and didn't know there were options to get better. So what I'd say is that it's it's really incredibly rewarding to be able to give someone a sense of, of being a person again, being able to engage, being able to enjoy things they used to enjoy, being able to be sort of there for their children or being able to function at work and excel. And so it's it's an area where there's a lot of sort of um, reward in terms of your impacts on people and their life. And then also just incredibly interesting from a point of view of, of how things affect us as people in general and society in general. And, and um, that when we're dealing with the brain and dealing with these things, which is such a complicated organ, you can't separate um, what's sort of the brain from the mind, from the soul, from, you know, and that really we have to consider people and as individuals and in all their facets and take that into consideration, which... Um, is I suppose a, an incredible puzzle which if you like um, that kind of way of thinking and you like being able to figure things out um, is really rewarding so I'd say that there are incredible opportunities mm. that it's a really multifaceted and diverse field um, in terms of finding a niche and finding what what has meaning for you but it's also a position where you really can make a change in someone's life. Um, I'm so glad you're highlighting that because there's this terrible notion out there that in psychiatry you don't see patients getting better or it's not curative no um i suppose and that speaks to medicine like internal medicine you know any chronic illness mm. um so we can't really negate the need for physicians i think that maybe in some ways our training and um, perhaps can lead us to feel a little bit nihilistic around it so as a student you may be exposed to the one percent of mental illness so you you sort of see the wards of, of patients who effectively if you were to compare them to a medically ill patient are emergencies mm. and that's the problem is because our patients aren't necessarily lying on a stretcher in an AME on sort of oxygen there's sort of this difficulty in understanding the severity of the illness but who we are admitting are the worst most severely yes, affected yes. but if you have an opportunity to work in an outpatient setting where you're really seeing patients who have problems like depression or even well-controlled bipolar and schizophrenia, who so are going back to work and are functioning well and are, are integrating back into their settings, you see the other 90, you know, 9% of yes. psychiatry. And that's where the hope is, you know. So, yes, we have a rotating door and we maybe are struggling to, to sort of um, treat the patients who are chronically admitted right in that we sometimes don't always have the services to be able to alter their course or maybe we see them when they're so severe in the illness that the outcome is, isn't um, as good as we would want. But if we can work on early intervention and we can work on patients early in the illness um, and you can change the outcomes there, um, that leads to much better outcomes. So I suppose that maybe our exposure as doctors from a training point of view is that you see sort of a very small percentage yeah, and you see the worst affected and then you start maybe generalizing that that all patients um, would end up that way which um, is a very small part of our practice mm -hmm. um, in, in sort of a real too. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Meister. So I hope to have you in the future if you'll agree yes, to do no, another topic patient. at some point. With patient. Thank you. Please share this podcast with anyone who you feel may benefit from it. And don't forget to leave a positive review. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. And I hope you really enjoyed the episode. 
As always, please leave a positive review and recommend this podcast to your friends and family. Also note, the content of this podcast is intended as an overview for medical learners and you or anyone else who experiencing difficulties with your mental health should contact your relevant healthcare provider. Thank you.